You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hi everyone, and welcome to Music Tectonics, the podcast that goes beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host today, Tristra Neuer Jaeger, Chief Strategy Officer at Rock Paper Scissors, the music tech and innovation PR firm. Today's episode leaps into the wonderfully sci-fi world of quantum music, except everything we will discuss today is actually real, so not that sci-fi. Or wait, is it both real and unreal at the same time? Anyway, our guest is Spencer Topel, who will give us a whirlwind tour of one of the most thrilling, odd, and bleeding-edge areas in music tech today. Tapal is an American artist known for his work in music composition, sound art, instrument design, and technology. After studying music composition at Juilliard and Cornell, Tapal became a professor of music at Dartmouth. Tapal's work and performances have been presented at amazing institutions like MoMA, the Weissman Art Museum in Minnesota, the Barnes Foundation, and Lincoln Center. His work has been performed by renowned ensembles like the Minnesota Orchestra, the Juilliard Symphony, and the Flux Quartet. In 2019, Topel founded Physical Synthesis, a company dedicated to developing new kinds of sound devices and products. And definitely look back for our past episode where we talk for a moment with Topel about some of the things he's up to with Physical Synthesis, one of our cool episodes where we talked about neat stuff we saw at NAMM. Anyway, Topel's latest artistic endeavors revolve around quantum computing technologies as they apply to music and sound synthesis. First, he had a residency at the Yale Quantum Institute where he and his team created the world's first musical synthesizer using qubits. And we'll find out what those are in just a second. And more recently, Tapel had an artist residency at Virginia Tech in 2022. Thank you so much, Spencer, for volunteering to introduce us to this interesting new world of quantum music. Yeah, thank you for having me. Quantum computers are still not a thing yet. Uh, it's, oh yeah, no. <laughs> but everyone acts like like IBM keeps sending out these great press releases that they are. So, <laughs> what is in principle, if quantum cu- computers were to exist, what are they? So quantum computers are uh, devices that use something called a qubit, and a qubit is a quantum bit. So if we think about bits, most of us who have encountered a computer know that bits uh, flip kind of values between zero and one. That's how they flip. So byte zero, byte one. A quantum computer would use qubits, which allow you to have basically uh, bits in superposition, meaning in a range of values of probabilities. Um, so imagine now that for every bit that you have, you can compute not two states, but three states or more. So this ends up being a really powerful tool. Uh, to compute things. And another really key part of a quantum computer that's different than a classical computer is that your bits, your qubits can be entangled, meaning they're one affects another, affects another, affects another, and they all affect each other. And this is important because there are certain applications like machine learning uh, mm-hmm. where you have neural networks and the neural networks need to affect each other. And so uh, in a quantum system, uh, like a quantum computer, those bits would then be able to produce more complex, richer calculations. So I have a quick question. So with with qubits, is it sort of like the Schrodinger's cat 
problem that we don't really know what position they're in. And once you get into the, even the complexities of entanglement, how do you know what's connected to what? Is there any, are people trying to sort, still sort this out or can you give us any sort of uh, overview of, of that problem? It, well, there's a great intuition here, which we can draw on, which is, is musical, it's sound. Um, Amazing. So in a way, the, the Schrodinger's equation describes a wave. It's a wave equation. Um, and it's, it's very much related to a standing wave of a string. So the way a string vibrates, the waves bounce back and forth. And that's effectively the model that we use to define um, states of uh, electrons, you know, excited state, ground state, et cetera. So that's a very musical thing. So in a way, it's kind of like um, instead of a classical computer where you have like fixed, you know, voltage values for like high and low, you now have this soup of values that are fluctuating and changing like a vibrating string. And that's kind of very interesting and very intuitive musically. Um, on the subject of entanglement, which is a really weird idea. But it's super cool, right? It's one of those ideas that has this poetry to it. And I think a lot of people have run with it maybe in the too poetical direction. But what's the practical side of it? Well, well, the practical side of it is that, you know, um, entanglement between two photons or mm -hmm. energy packets, you know, these kind of subatomic particle elements, the, these energy packets, the, the basic idea is that they want to entangle to anything. So, you know, in any given system, um, there's entanglement happening, you know, like in a solid object or a mass, it's, it, there's, there's entanglement between all the energy states that are in that object. Now, when you talk about things like um, entangling two electrons that are isolated and mm -hmm. at a distance, and this is this, this idea that Einstein referred to as spooky action <laughs> at a distance, meaning two electrons can be entangled no matter how far apart they are. Um, and, and recently, there was a really interesting experience, uh, experiment out of ETH Zurich that really kind of attempted to definitively prove that entanglement exists and can be measured. And what they did was they set up two quant qubits uh, at a distance. I think it was like 27 uh, mm -hmm. meters apart or something quite ridiculous. And basically built a gigantic uh, dilution refrigerator, a big, cold, empty, void vacuum system. And they used a laser to flip one of the qubits on the other side. And then they sent another message when it flipped again. And the the what they were interested in seeing was would the other qubit mm -hmm. flip with the other one? Were they entangled? So the first, first thing they did was they entangled the qubits. And then the second was, I'll just send a message. And if we flip that bit quick enough, this one, would the other qubit mm -hmm. flip with it? Cool. And it did. And they, they measured that over and over and over again. So they kind of like, that was, there's been a bunch of these experiments that have shown mm -hmm. that entanglement exists. This is the one that is kind of like bulletproof. Yeah. It's as, you know, it, it rules out as, as many other possible conditions as possible. So one thing to think about in terms of computing, which makes quantum computing very hard, is the problem that these these electrons want to entangle with various things. So it could be something in the environment, it could be a space ray, it could be anything yeah. that could touch it. And so as a result, like it's very hard to isolate these systems. And again, that we have a musical analogy there, which I, which I love, which is signal to noise ratio or the noise floor. When we talk about recording, we, we have to kind of set our microphone levels to deal with the noise floor. Well, there's a quantum noise floor. And you're kind of accounting for that as you build these experiments and these systems. And a big part of what people are trying to solve to get to a working quantum computer idea of decoherence. 
how fast is your system going to destabilize or entangle with something else or devolve into randomness? And, you know, I mean, randomness has its own uses, but it sounds like everything could be, yeah, there's there's still a lot to, to work with in order to make this a, a, quote, you know, a machine that we might be able to apply in specific and predictable ways. That said, I love how you've drawn all these parallels with music, and people are already using some of these quantum computing capabilities or theories to create new new ways of making music, new approaches to music. Can you give us like a quick snapshot of some of those experiments and thoughts? Yeah, so uh, maybe I'll just back up a second and say Please. where this started for me was um, it, it was somewhat random. <laughs> you got entangled. Did I got you get entangled? No, definitely. So, <laughs> so what had happened was I received an email. Uh, it was in the kind of a point in our, my personal life when we were transitioning my wife and moved back to New York. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I got this email from Yale Quantum Institute from this guy named Florian Carley. And I, it said, hey, we want you to be our artist in residence at the Yale Quantum Institute. And I just sort of disregarded it. You know, it's like, what do you, it didn't, I was like, who does this? Like, yeah. and I don't have time for this. I have other things that I'm working on. And then I got a phone call a few weeks later, like three weeks later. And it was this guy, Florian, and he said, hey, uh, I tried to email you. Do you, we want to talk to you. And then I found out that they had funding and they really wanted to do this and they mm-hmm. wanted to bring me down for years in residence. So um, I said, sure, I'll come down. I don't know anything about a quantum computer, what you're working on. Um, I, I really had to, it was a steep learning curve to get an even quantum mechanics as it relates to the quantum engineering. Mm-hmm. So in any case, I went down there and I showed them what, what I was working on, which is this instrument called Cicada, which is related back to physical synthesis. and. I said, here's what we're doing. And a couple of grad students came up immediately, um, Luke Burkhardt and Kyle Cerniak. Um, and they said, hey, this is really cool. This very much relates to kind of things we're thinking about in the quantum domain. And that's sort of how it started. Um, and so over the course of a year at Yale, at this amazing project where I get to work with the, these amazing scientists, Rob Shulkoff and Michelle Deveray and their grad students, really you know, look at the application side of quantum computing. And my first inclination, I think, was to go back to the the, the beginning of sound synthesis and say mm-hmm. how, you know, if you look at, you know, the, the early musical instruments, uh, you know, this is like the teleharmonium and uh, eventually the Moog synthesizer. And, yeah. you know, they were exploiting the, the kind of the magic of the transistor to make mm-hmm. music. And a qubit in that sense is kind of primitive still, and it's very much like a transistor, but in this quantum transistor, for lack of a better word. Yeah, no, that makes tons of sense. Yeah, so my thinking is like, let's just use this qubit as it is as a synthesizer, and let's figure out how to drive it and control it and manipulate it. And so that became an album that we produced called Quantum Sound, which is on all the different platforms, Spotify, (laughs) Apple, et cetera. You can go take a look. And I think a key decision I made early on was I didn't want to make this album necessarily about myself. I wanted mm-hmm. it to be collaborative. And so the two grad students I mentioned earlier, Kyle and Luke, I brought them in as musicians. And so we effectively formed a laptop ensemble <laughs> where, where they would participate and perform with me. And the advantage this gave us was they have a deep knowledge of their systems about their the intuition. I mean, it's one thing to know how to program something. It's another thing to know why that program matters and why it creates amazing things. Um, And so they were able to give me insights into what kind of instruments we could build. So for example, we built a a four state um, 
you know, kind of state following synth called mm-hmm. called four state um, physical. <laughs> it's really complicated. And yeah. what it did was it used um, kind of the logical jumps that were being observed in the data to control notes or pitch changes mm-hmm. or rhythm changes, whatever have you. Um, and then we modulated that against the quantum noise floor so you could actually hear it. So that that was an important part of it, is really tying in the actual signal to the um, controls. So that was kind of like the, the, the bulk, the heart of this project. This past year, I was re- I, a, a composer named um, Rico Yamada reached out and she said, hey, we're doing this um, symposium at ICFO in Spain called Quantum Sounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, well, that's a good name. I like it. Um, <laughs> and it turned out to be this amazing thing that happened in Spain this past summer in June. It was an invite only conference. And um, that was largely kind of precipitated by this book project that was led by Eduardo Miranda, uh, mm-hmm. amazing composer and kind of visionary person. Uh, I've really grown to appreciate him and, and love his energy. Did he have a video that featured him sort of controlling a system using these like really cool like ring devices and some other cool? Okay, so that was that was the first video I ever saw about quantum um, um, quantum music, and we should definitely link to it in the show notes because it's it's striking. But Edward has been for the last several years working on things relating to quantum. And mm-hmm. there's kind of really two kind of trajectories for music. And I think this is really pertinent to the audience. There's the synthesis side and sonification mm-hmm. side, which is really what I was interested in in 2019 yeah. onward. Uh, and there's number, another side, which is simulation and information side. And hmm. um, there's some amazing work um, out of this quantum computing company called Quantinium. And, you know, they're lead scientist or chief scientist, Bob Koeki, uh, has worked a lot on language semantics and quantum models. And that was effectively how Eduardo Miranda became connected to that whole world was through mm-hmm. Bob. And, and as a result, there's this, all this amazing work coming out relating to the idea of composition, like more traditional music composition mm-hmm. um, as well. So you kind of see this, this world emerging of activity Maybe the third area is called simulation. Uh, and that's something I've become quite interested in. There was, after we released Quantum Sound, this young artist uh, or artist slash scientist, he's actually a mathematician and now a co-author for a project named Parker Kuklinski, uh, reached out to me. He actually reached out to Yale and said, hey, I want to work with you guys. You're doing Quantum Sound. I've been looking at sonification of quantum carpets, which is a mathematical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to Parker and we hit it off right away. And as part of a Virginia Tech residency that I did in uh, 2022, because uh, it, it was delayed by a couple of years yeah. because of COVID, yeah, yeah. Virginia Tech had this I-4 conference led by Eric Lyon. And so he brought all these artists. He c- kind of wanted to kind of create a you know Black Mountain College experience for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so they have a huge multi-array speaker system. And so I was able to take the simulation that Parker and I created, again, that runs on classical computers, but it represents quantum information, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of a representational thing. And we tried that synthesis out on that system and it was really amazing, it was interesting. Um, just to give you an idea, I can link those sound files later, but- Yeah, it, absolutely. It was almost like it had a built-in reverb uh, oh, to interesting. it. And, what we were doing was putting in classical inputs into a system and it's, it's called a variational quantum oscillator. You put classical mm-hmm. inputs in and you drive those and you get you know, hundreds of outputs or many, many outputs. 
So, you know, that was my first foray into what quantum computing could be when we mm -hmm. have, but it's still, we're at that interesting <laughs> early stage where we can develop software over here, but we don't necessarily have the hardware yet to run it. That is so interesting. It almost feels, uh, to, to someone who is, you know, a total outsider to this world, that feels almost like the cart is before the horse. But it sounds like you're already getting Im important information and experience from those simulations. Absolutely. Simulation, in a sense, is the way we understand information. And this is something that, you know, Art Eduardo and I talked about recently that, you know, you can learn a lot from just thinking differently about a problem. And that's mm. very much where simulation and the software being written around simulation matters. Uh, but that said, we're starting to get to a point where quantum computers are solving some kind of problems. Uh, there's specific problems in uh, random number generation. Like, yeah, there's a company out of Spain that's a spin out of ICFO that does quantum random number generation. We use that as our final concert at ICFO. And it was fun. I mean, is, is it human perceivable? <laughs> Probably not, but it it's there. Um, and you're starting to see big companies like IBM and, and Microsoft and and others start to actually solve problems with quantum systems. But to call it like a quantum computer is very much kind of open debate in the community. Fascinating. So I want to take a step back and return to something really interesting you said, Spencer, about uh, early early synthesis using transistors and sort of the different directions you talked about in where we are now with quantum music thinking and, and creation. And, and you mentioned that both the sort of uh, the synthesis, the sort of basic, like, how do I make a sound with this approach and the composing side? And it felt like at the early synthesizers, those two things were just like informing each other left and right and have really laid the groundwork for a lot of contemporary music, even of the most popular kind and of the most sort of exploratory kind. I'm wondering, are you, how are, how does that feel, that relationship between, um, you know, gut bucket synthesis of sound and composition feel with quantum? Is there, are there any differences? Are there any nuances that really excite you as an artist? It's an interesting and really challenging question. I, I actually love it. Uh, I think a lot of those were discussed at ICFO in some of our panel sessions. That's my mm -hmm. first reaction. I, I think there's a Another a third party in this problem, which is maybe a little different from early sound synthesis, is is sort of the the science community and what they mm. hope to get out of this, um, out of this kind of work. And I know there's a real need or concern, uh, fear about misinformation about what quantum quantum is, um, yeah. and in the science community and how how do we better communicate what we do? Uh, and that was really Florian's. I would say one of his main missions with forming the artist residency at uh, YQI at Yale Quantum Institute was let's teach the public in a better, more effective way what these technologies are. Uh, I remember one talk, it was a public talk that we gave as part of the Arts and Ideas Festival in New Haven. Mm -hmm. uh, a guy, just a general you know, public member, uh, audience member stood up and he said, hey guys, uh, you know, I have a question for Spencer and is like, physicist guy or something like this physicist yeah. and his physicist. I love that. I still call yeah. Kyle my physicist. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're lucky not every, not every artist gets their own physicist. Right. I don't know if Kyle likes that, but, uh, but, so but he, he stood said, up and asked, yeah. yeah. So this gentleman stood up and said, Hey, I have a question for Spencer and a physicist, you know, it, you know, with these quantum computers, are they going to like open up a black hole and, you know, consume the earth and so on? And I just didn't, yes. I didn't know what to say. I was like, uh, yeah. 
you know, and I, I just said, look, you know, there's a lot of misrepresentations about mm. what what quantum is. Absolutely no black holes can open up if you run a quantum computer. Um, and a lot of times scientists misrepresent it fairly to their to credit. They misrepresent or over-exaggerate or miscontextualize things that are really important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like certain types of effects might occur, but they're on such a small scale that it would never affect the rest of the universe. So yeah. I think some of the things are like taken out of context that way. Um, I think that combined in quantum with things like quantum healing and you know, oh, quantum medicine, you know, yeah. there's all when this. The sh- when the shamans start to come into the conversation, <laughs> you know that maybe you've gotten steered a little bit away from the basic science. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. So I, I think there's this real need. There's this kind of other piece, which is like, how do we address misinformation or misrepresentation? Mm. And, you know, part of our mission with physical synthesis as a company is to bring people closer to yeah. experience and understanding things. And, and so do you go back to your point about, or your question about, um, you know, how does composition or ideas-based kind of representational work such as composing relate to sound synthesis? And I think Mm -hmm. what I see is that we're looking at kind of how these things relate to each other all the time. Like the conference was made up of people doing both. And I was very keenly listening to how they were talking about their work because I wanted to better understand the, the, the work I was doing. And so, mm-hmm. you know, one thing that's really difficult about quantum mechanics is that you almost have to erase everything you know about the way the, <laughs> the world is supposed to work. Like all the yeah. Newtonian physics, physics go out the door and you just kind of have to retrain your mind a bit to think conceptually and really understand uh, on some level like that this is a different phenomenon. It occurs in this, this context only, you know, in a subatomic context only. And you have to be okay with that, <laughs> you know? It's, and so I think we're dealing with something that's very hard to see, very hard to intuit. So anything that kind of helps us better understand that, whether it's kind of a representation or a sonification is good. So the core h- hardware doesn't exist yet. So we don't really have a fully functioning um, quantum computer, but as as we mentioned a few minutes ago, um, Eduardo Miranda has some really interesting controllers, and as some and in uh, you know you and in physical synthesis have have built interesting sort of intersections between virtual and and physical um, experiences. Anyway, I want to ask you, what kind of controllers are people using? How are people demonstrating or manipulating these systems that they're setting up? What what kind of interesting hardware stuff is coming out of this that might apply more generally, not just to quantum music making? Mm-hmm. So, so the the device you're talking about is has, has to do with a model of a qubit. Yeah, there's a, thank you I for think, explaining it. Because yeah. <laughs> I was just like, whoa! I don't think I could explain it. I was like, what is that? That's so cool. So yeah, go go on, Spencer. No, so it's okay. So two things: one, the hardware does exist, but it's in development. You know, okay. so you know to be really clear, like you know we have systems that have many qubits now or, or chips that have qubits we have different kinds there's like mm-hmm. not just one kind there's there's like trapped ion there's um uh, light based or, or laser based systems mm-hmm. there's there's people trying to make circuit boards uh with these things so there's a whole range of different like a whole ecosystem of possible contenders for what a mm-hmm. qubit could be made out of so, yeah. so so it is the stuff does exist and in, in a similar way the transistor went through a, a bumpy road to becoming mm-hmm the modern, you know, IC or the, you know, embedded processor. So, mm-hmm. so just with that said, um, in terms of control, I think that's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, so I could see, 
I think we're pretty, we're like almost too early to tell. <laughs> mm, okay. Yeah. I think people like, for instance, we used like basic, you know, um, Ableton, you know, mm -hmm. launch pads to do yeah. stuff just to, it needed a way to like activate stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I saw one artist at ICFO that had like a light table that he was using. So he's using cool. like infrared to, to kind of control stuff. So that, mm -hmm. that was a cool analogy. Um, with Miranda, they were using these kind of rings to rotate and move the mm -hmm. qubit and spin. So it's kind of like you set in a position and then you compute some values out of it. And that actually like would query an actual uh, quantum system and then you get an answer wow. back. And then that's your that becomes a sound synthesis parameter state for your synth. So you can then play some music. Mm -hmm. So conceptually, Amazing. that's very cool. Yeah, um, it is. But I would say we're a little early to tell if there's any kind of interfaces yet, then we'll be like, that's an interface. I got you. That's really, that's really good to know. Um, so what, what are your aims? Um, having uh, experimented with these different quantum approaches, uh, you know, what do you hope to achieve as an artist mm -hmm. moving forward? Or, or was that like, this is really fun and, and it was great experimentation, but I kind of want to head in a different creative direction. Do you have any sort of artistic goals that you've set after experimenting? Well, I would say that there's kind of like two sets of goals. I have one set of goals as an artist and then one set of goals as a technologist or an mm -hmm. instrument designer. Yeah. Um, I think on the instrument design side, I'm really fascinated with this idea of um, there's something called quantum machine learning, uh, mm -hmm. but how that might be applied to signal processing and how we might be able to, I would say, you know, con conceivably anyway, synthesize at much higher resolutions, uh, a set mm -hmm. of parameters for say speech synthesis or sound synthesis of instruments. So because of the way these systems work and this idea of, you know, entanglement being applied and and these kind of spaces, I think you're going to see more effective sound synthesis tools eventually. And I, I would love to be involved in that process. And I'm kind of still trying to figure out what that, what that means again, since we don't have the hardware yet. Uh, in, in this, we don't have the computer yet. Um, mm -hmm. And it, or if we do, it's like super expensive. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I guess what I'm saying is like on that side of it, I, I think there's still a lot more just groundwork to be laid in sound mm -hmm. quantum sound synthesis. And there are some people working on that. I'm, I'm participating in some projects where hopefully that leads to some things. Um, sound spatialization, I think, can greatly benefit from, from uh, quantum algorithm processing, um, speed, and things like mm -hmm. computing things like phase, frequency, location. Uh, so I think there's a, a great opportunity there. And then I think artistically, I just want to have more time, <laughs> maybe I have more time to make art. I guess. Uh, <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> um, I, I guess artistically, I really want to see more artists have access mm -hmm. to these technologies. And, and you know, it, it, it's one thing for a, a, like a small few people to have the opportunity to do it. It's another thing to like be able to give it to all the different artists that we've worked with on Cicada. I would love mm -hmm. like say Etienne or as it goes, Mason have the opportunity to use these system. What he would, he would do with this or Ben Jordan or, um, you know, Andrew Huang, you know, it would be amazing to bring some yeah. of these artists in and say, what, what could you do with this? And there are people all over the world. If the interface was accessible enough, who could probably contribute some really interesting thoughts and feelings and, and ideas to the mix as well. It's like, um, it's, it's exciting to, to be at the beginning of this new um, sound and music creation technology. Yeah, it, we, re we really are at the beginning. And, you know, I, I immediately think of Max Matthews and, 
you know, what, what he did to create, you know, the first computer music, it, mm-hmm. it's very much a kind of nostalgia for me, if you will. Like, there, it really does feel like a moment. And it's something we all talked yeah. about in Spain. And the, the next event that's relating to, I'll share that with you as well, uh, ISQ CMC in Berlin will happen mm-hmm. October 5th and 6th um, at the Intercontinental Hotel. Uh, and that'll be the next conference that's that's about um, quantum computing and music and music creativity. So, you know, I'd like to see more activity here and, and see more participation. Fantastic. Well, this has been a really great whirlwind tour of, of quantum music making. We're going to have a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk more about physical synthesis and some of the great stuff you're doing there. Okay, okay. We heard you. We're keeping those early bird tickets open for a little while longer. You can still get that special rate of $249 for a ticket to the Music Tectonics Conference, but don't hesitate. Early birds will be gone for good after Tuesday, August 22nd. If you've been to other music industry conferences, you know that this rate is a sweet deal for three days, packed with conversation and connection with the top leaders and thinkers in music and tech. We are all gathering October 24th, 25th, and 26th by the beach in Santa Monica, California for insightful keynotes, high-energy panels, intensive networking, and lots of opportunities to get business done. Don't wait to get your early bird ticket at musictectonics.com. It's your last chance. And while you're there, see who's on our speaker roster and what we have planned for ticket holders at the online pre-conference September 13th. I hope I will see you there. And we're back. Hello, Spencer. Thanks for um, walking us through quantum music making. I hope everyone's mind is minds have been blown and that like, you know, your your quantum healing has commenced. Sorry. I had to. <laughs> <laughs> the, the temptation to to go on like an anti anti quantum woo rant um, will be resisted. Let's go and I, I want to talk to you about some of your other projects that are uh, things that people can see here and touch. Um, so last time you were on the podcast, I think it was part of one of our NAM episodes. We heard a lot about physical synthesis and your unique cicada acoustic synthesizer. Um, what's next? What are you guys working on now? Yeah, so right now we're working on two projects that would interest this audience. One is called Nymph, which is a Eurorack module. And uh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah, one of those. Yeah, yeah. Can, so, you, can you explain what that is? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> so Nymph will, is basically uh, the name references like a adolescent cicada. It's like insects uh-huh. or nymphs, yeah. right? I, uh, I thought that was it was that rather than like some sort of um, wood woodland sprite. Yeah, I mean, we've got that too, but um, in, this, <laughs> in this case, we're talking about the adolescent insects. So we, we had an idea to create Nymph, which is a, a Eurorack version of Cicada. So mm-hmm. we a lot of our customers were like, could you guys just make something smaller that I can transport? <laughs> yeah. Because it's, it's a bit of a schlep. You know, you're carrying around these case and all this stuff and mm-hmm. people not, might not have the setup. And one of the really cool features in this new version that we're about to release is uh, uh, an ability to raise and lower the stepper motor at, at, through a signal, or mm-hmm. the soundboard rather, raise and lower the soundboard through a signal um, via a stepper motor. And the idea there is that you can just now autonomously run Cicada, but as a nymph, mm-hmm. nymph version. Um, so that's going to be really cool. And then, you know, I think the the fact that we got it to run in a Eurorack is kind of miraculous because, you know, Things like transducers and other things can be kind of power hogs. So yeah, 
we really went out of our way to like make this achievable. Um, the second project we're working on, which I don't know how much I can say, but we're we're working on a, a satellite project. We're going to be putting a synth in space. Oh, it's oh, great! I mean, I've seen the pictures of the cats with synths in space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this this is an actual synthesizer in space. It'll be in a oh, low That is amazing. Yeah. Like a low earth orbit type. So Absolutely. we'll be able to look up look up and watch the synth fly by. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, may, I know I know you can't go too deep into this yet and I completely understand if you can't answer this question, but why? Why what why would you do that? <laughs> Besides, I mean it's really cool, but why? I mean, why not? I don't... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is in some ways. I I've heard of everyone. Um, I've heard of experimental composers using, say, like, um, you know, the 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 internet network as an instrument, like using latency and other other qualities of the network to 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 play music. Like, and I'm wondering, are you are you playing low Earth orbit satellites, or is it just the the synth is going to sit up there, or well, is sorry, that getting too? No, no, we can go into more detail. Uh, so what we what we've created is a, a an instrument that can only work in space. It uses oh, zero amazing. zero gravity. So uh, what? Yeah. That's that's insane. I love it. <laughs> so we it, it's relatively simple this time. We didn't we didn't go crazy. Uh, it's literally a small marble. It's the project's called Blue Marble, and it it release it gets released from this like kind of marble catch into this kind of chamber. It's a pressurized uh -huh. chamber. And as it moves around and floats around, those generate control signals, which then we can use for music synthesis on Earth. Um, That's so fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, so secondly, we've also put mm -hmm. in a small, we're working with a company called U-Sound out of Germany. Uh, mm -hmm. And we've, they've created a MEM speaker and we have a small microphone. So you can actually play sound in this capsule. Uh, and so that that's really the, you know, going back to something I said earlier in the interview, you know, there's this idea of bringing people closer to experience and, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about what space is and what, mm -hmm. you know, we have flat earthers, right? Like, uh, <laughs> so how do we, how do we help people feel closer to these, these technologies? And I think the reason we're doing it is that, you know, there's so many science initiatives in space and I would say mm -hmm. so few humanistic, artistic, arts and humanities initiatives in space, that this is an opportunity to kind of point us to, to that direction. Like we need to do more in space that is relevant to people's lives, because if it isn't, nobody cares. Like, okay, so you did some strange experiment up there, but how does that relate to my, how I feel today or what I did? Yeah. So, so that's why we're really doing it is to like bring people closer to the phenomenon of what it means to be in space. That is really cool and and really intriguing, and I can't wait to hear what that sounds like. So, you know, with these inventive music products, how I mean, how, how what's the relationship? Sort of to get back to a, a complicated and somewhat convoluted question I asked you about quantum music. Um, you know, you you make these music products, and you're also a composer and artist. How do those two? How does the technologist and artist like? How, what kind of conversation do they have? What's their duet like? Um, how? You know, how does inspiration come when you have this interesting conversation between those two? Par I mean, it, honestly, they're the same part of, of, of a human, I would argue, um, but they can have really curious interplay. And I think it can be quite individual. How does it feel for you? I would say I'll just refer back to Cicada when we built that. I didn't mm -hmm. really know what I, I had never released a commercial music product. Right. So or attempted to. And, and I think, you know, 
the one really surprising outcome was the satisfaction I felt from other people playing, loving and creating music on an instrument that I made. Mm. So that was a very new feeling. Uh, you know, I think up to that point, I was I used instruments. I mean, I'm a violinist by training and I, mm -hmm. I placed a little bit of piano because I had to as a composer. Uh, but, you know, for me, I never thought of like making or inventing a device that then somebody would find satisfaction and musicality in. So to me, that's really where these intersect. And I think with like Blue Marble and some of the other tools we'll be releasing relative to the quantum projects, uh, you know, it's, it's about that same feeling is like, I'm curious to see what you'll do with it. Mm -hmm. you know, that's where this intersects for me. It's like, there's still an audience. It's just, they're consuming and using the, the product that I make in a different way. You know, artistically, if people listen to it, have affinity to it, um, and then become a fan of your work, you hope or not. And you, who knows? But and then, <laughs> yeah. and then on the technology side, it's a similar thing, but it's how they're they're seeing themselves in this thing and, and finding a way to express themselves. So amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, Spencer, and for tolerating um, my noob questions. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. There's so much here to unpack. And I, I'm, I'm really grateful you gave us such a great introduction to this really exciting field. Yeah, and I, I apologize to all the quantum engineers and quantum scientists out there. I hope I didn't misrepresent quantum yeah. technology in the wrong way. All, I did the best I can, could. <laughs> it's not Spencer. It's the interviewer. Please send me all your strongly worded emails, um, and and I'm I, I'm happy to be corrected. I'd love to learn more. So thank yeah. you so much. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know we do free monthly online events that you, our lovely podcast listeners, can join? Find out more at musictectonics.com. And while you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. Everything we do explores the seismic shifts that shake up music and technology, the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. That's my favorite platform. Connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it. We'll be back again next week, if not sooner. You're listening to Music Tectonics.